0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story.
1: Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad.
2: My son was—he's uh, was about 70 years old, Gino—and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I, I I'd even play old videos with Pirates for vertical manning, so I became his guy. And he liked Bonds' bat. He saw the black and two-tone and wood bat. He goes, "Dad, I like—man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments and everyone likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies." They all had stock bats. None were small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. They only stopped at 29 or they stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them and then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one, I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy, you know, I use electrical tape to (laughs) to do whatever. And I I carved in, I think that one was the Gino Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. That was the Gino Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, he's hitting good with that bat. I want one with my kid's name on it. So we we'll formed form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted. Because I thought cedar's gonna last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not gonna rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, Have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there, and that was my bat shop. And then no, that was 2002. Jack
1: went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some
2: little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said sabin was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get it away. That's
1: championship coach Nick Saban.
2: So... I'd spend nights, and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, oh, I want one.
1: But he didn't charge them for it.
2: I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15 and Because uh, money was never a thing. I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know.
1: Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league
2: player. And we're catching up, and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off of Louisville Slugger model, so C C-243. Said alright, I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the back. <laughs> I think I made him two. And I mean what's he gonna do with it? Maybe he's just gonna put it up in his house. So he meets me in front of the hotel and he and he pulls out the box and his eyes light up and he goes, "Man, he goes, I'm going to use this tonight." I said, "What?" I said, "This thing's going to explode, Eddie." I said, "I've seen seven and eight-year-olds swing this." I said, "You're going to swing this, this thing." He goes, "I'm going to sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out." And uh, he goes, "I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice." I said, "Okay." He gets me down there and. He goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduces me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery, and he talks to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So... Me and my son go to Houston, and and he says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I I gave it to my son. I go, here, Gina, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in, in the stadium.
1: You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming for the game and to deliver their bat, so one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn
2: rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do. This the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us. He gives us thumbs up and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. Gordon stands with everybody bales, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him. Everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting to sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bat boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a modus stick, the tackiness and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute. He's going to hit with that bat. You just brought it to him. And he starts taking BP. So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with it up the middle. Again, he goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago. And this guy's using a Major League
0: Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this
2: is ridiculous.
0: And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's Athletic Training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. and we're back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game.
2: Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them that I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking him in the game, he's leaving me voicemails. man, I hit a lead against Nomo, and, I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is.
1: One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs.
2: So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're gonna be in the playoffs, you can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're we're about to take off, we're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off, and I said, let me get back and I'll cut them, so. I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe maybe i will use them for batting practice or whatever, I don't know. And. Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And, and I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny, it looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo all said it looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple of years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team and why he's significant. I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him, I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I sent him. I said, weren't you afraid you're gonna get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know, I didn't know what company it was, I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back, I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it So I said, do you know what the CB stood for? He goes, no, I said, curse buster. I put CB to break the curse, the curse buster of the Yankees.
1: The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago, allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees, all the way back in 1919.
2: The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story to the Hall of Fame. They wanted them, you know. It's just, it's one of those things. You just never know. And um, so Marucci bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats. Those guys were hitting well in the Phillies took off. With Ryan Howard, won the World Series, our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was
1: unstoppable, and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major
2: leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And and, and then, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendinitis. I, I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack... You, You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, you don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality, companies that he was using says, you know, I only can get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but He's going to use four to five bats out of the dozen. He felt the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most
1: elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the the rest of us.
2: Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to pool, It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality you're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come.
1: A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect.
2: We're dependent on an organic piece of material, that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood, you're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and, and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing, so now you gotta warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why
1: the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania. So that they could have a stable supply source and
2: one that they can control at least try to and still if you look at the wood that comes in probably only 13 to 14 percent is used for major league bats because of how selective we are
1: their 86 percent rejection rate is absolutely nuts and it's actually even worse or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day, and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%, and for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%, and he ended up getting it down to 0.5%.
2: One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing an idea. Players wanted to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, well, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why want... Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So we have 18, probably 18 major league baseball players who are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is which is good.
1: Jack could do that given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is
2: a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time and we weren't trying to sell to everybody. You know, I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If, if you're embarrassed, you, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues and I told him if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making your bets anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it, it makes you different but then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So we became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We, we passed the Louisville Slugger and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But um, you know, you, you're in sport and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son and that would
0: have been it. (laughs) One inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, More of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, our American Dreamers segment, and series continues. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade.
1: As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class wood maker or... Really, a woodmaker at all. He took an eighth grade wood shop class, and that was about it. He had to buy secondhand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So, how is it even possible that this non woodmaker, non baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling? in Major League Baseball. Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it.
2: How did you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot, then you can go to, then you get a master's at University of YouTube. And you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain, you, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks, with all the great rock bands and, you know, there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it and there is formulas, but you can learn that. You can if you, if you want to, the resources are there, if, if you have the passion for it, you can
1: if you have the willingness to. Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower.
2: I I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous, maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with, everybody was pretty ethnic. And, you know, we went to the Italian church Saint and St. Teresa's we thought that's how it was everywhere.
1: Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church.
2: No, it wasn't the cat. it was the Italian church. We went to, There was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So, I mean, you think, uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner. And we went back to see her where she grew up. It was like San Diego. I'm going, why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad. They had a civil war. The economy was bad. And the war's breaking out. This was like in the early 40s. So. But her dad comes over here right before the war, War II. And he's trying to save money bring the family up. But he can't get back and forth. So, my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So, she was 11 the first time she saw her dad. <laughs> her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put them in second grade to learn the English and <laughs> worked their way up. Then, my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. I mean, you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island and <laughs> Somehow he got through all that and they said, well, you're only 15 and they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16.
1: And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones.
2: It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad, End up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed and was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, 700 people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old, and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats and we'd stay up late and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost one o'clock and we never stay up this late.
1: Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse.
2: That was child abuse. (laughs) We were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, you know, we'd give them the coat and we'd like we're coughing go, how oh, about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How oh, about a buck? You know, and so, so, I mean, we would just do all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it, that's 50 bucks each. Not bad. For a 10-year-old, Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet, he was speaking. So, we were a sports-oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up. A lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there.
1: Within a 50-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the Cradle of Quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball... Pistol Pete
2: Maravich is from there, too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But, you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative, and I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture but when you're when you're growing up you don't you have no idea
1: you're just living and breathing it not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks and that this immigrant mentality is a gift
2: so, so we're going to Bamante's in New York it's the oldest i think it's it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area, it's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos, they filmed a lot in there. So I get in there, it's not a big place, and I'm sitting there and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. Here comes Tommy Lasoria comes walking in. Then Joe Episcopo comes walking in. And Leonardo DiCaprio comes along. I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. This, this really happens. People just start marching. All these Italians. Jack Marucci. Yeah, then here's, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown.
0: And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means football 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 but it wasn't just that folks that early work experience as a young man we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories work young child labor laws would have probably prevented jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character formed his nature and he was having fun yeah he was up late but 50 bucks he split 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way self-taught all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. American stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamer's stories on Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off.
1: On Marucci Sports's website, there's video testimonies from MLB players, including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutchen. And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home
3: run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the, the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit.
1: And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida.
0: I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will
1: Powerful. God. Stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives.
2: It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are becoming more ashamed of it. We I mean, will talk about it. So. That's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion. You know, you should be, when good things, how about thanking that? you know, that, that side of it? Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always, And when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that 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 is he's strong with that. That, that's, That's real now. That's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Biden lived it. But found didn't cuss. He lived that life. And
1: Jack doesn't cuss either, even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it.
2: Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant, and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just I just never never have it. I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over, I'm not going to mention his name, I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity, <laughs> and he did. And I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language, but, um, I, and I have none, again, there's there's none, we're in an environment of it, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church, on on a weekend you should, it, it's a time to be thankful <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and you know we're so busy and we try to say our prayers at night but a lot of times you know we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we we do we don't but that's a time where you're, you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff but that's self talk that's a whole other topic and what we try to do and you know, I don't know how the mind can overpower you so but that's where Faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player, and his name's Cecil Collins. Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games.
1: That's it. And yet Jack is
2: insisting
1: that he's still the best they've ever had.
2: You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little. He struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. I justified He was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years. He just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected. Been trying to help him with some things. Invited him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, doesn't. he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating. Um, I was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a, unbelievable. He's a gem. He's got a family. He's, he's, he's become an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future.
1: In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet, that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had. Could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. But now, he's an electrician. And you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is. An integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by
4: it. I'm so happy for you. I and mean, I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. Love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John has shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training.
1: We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates.
4: I mean, there were only a few of us that knew the story going in. So for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant. And then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally so. If I could ever be of service to you, please let let me know. I will send you my contact information. I sent out a daily email of encouragement. Um, I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, But John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, Love to run into you, Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
1: That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know.
0: That I can. For
1: Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
0: And what a story! I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And Our American Dreamer Stories can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories. And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness, well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamers series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of our American Dreamer series stories over at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates' message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone, because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger, and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character, can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories.
4: Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into. Um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, and be a servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So, if I can ever be of service to you, please let let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement, and I'll like send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine, he speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you all good by me, let me know if I can be of service, Maybe we connect sometime during the season, uh, love to run into you.
1: To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook, and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter, so that we can send you our best stories, every week. More of Our American Stories, after the break.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about everything here on this show, and sometimes we bring you your stories, and on this occasion, we're doing just that. This one comes from John Wolfe, a listener, on our Boston affiliate WNTN 1550 AM. John brings us back to the year 1978, after the Yankees' mind-blowing September comeback to tie the Boston Red Sox for the American League East title. The arch-rivals had to face each other again, this time for a one-game playoff.
5: The Red Sox won a coin toss, and so the game would be in Fenway at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. As Boston has the smallest stadium in the major leagues, the chances that I would be able to get a ticket weren't even on my mind. All I wanted was a good seat to watch the game on TV. I didn't have a TV, so I went to a local bar, The Fathers 2 on Mass Ave, and settled in at 11 a.m. for a 1 p.m. game because I wanted to make sure that I had a good seat. Well, as the morning wore on, I realized I was surrounded by nothing but Red Sox fans, and they were a little belligerent, and I was pretty cocky back then, too, and I was giving it as well as I was getting it, but the thought hit me. I'm completely outnumbered, and everybody's drinking, and I should probably get out of here. And I thought, I'll walk down to Boston University and find some lounge with a TV where a bunch of New Yorkers would be. It'll be a much safer situation. I could have left 30 seconds earlier. I could have left 30 seconds later, but I didn't. I left when I left and I had to walk through Kenmore Square which was much closer to Fenway Park and just as I was going through just walking towards BU my best friend saw me and called out my name and he told me he was going up to Fenway Park and that his friend had a ticket for him an extra ticket and uh, he told me come along come on up to Fenway and I said well I was kind of depressed. I said, you're happy for him. But I said, your friend's not going to have another extra ticket. And he said, oh, just come on up. If it doesn't work out, you can still always walk down to BU in five minutes and watch the game. So we walked up there and it was a fascinating scene. The entire stadium was surrounded by guys in their early 20s, late teens like us. And not one ticket was for sale. We were there for an hour. We did not hear one scalper offering a ticket. And so finally, 1 o'clock comes along, and he says, Come on, John, let's go down to uh, BU and watch the game. And again, we could have been walking up the street 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, but we weren't. We were walking at that moment, and some kid on the street sees these two guys in suits and ties who looked in their 40s, which we thought of as old back then, walking towards the stadium entrance, and he said, you have any extra tickets? He might as well have said, Do you have an airplane? And the gentleman looked at him, one of them, and said, yeah, I got two box seats. There was a commercial campaign back in the 70s for E.F. Hutton, the financial advisors. And in those commercials, there'd always be a crowd, and someone would say, What is your broker saying? And the other one would say, Well, my broker's EF Hutton. And everything would go silent as everybody leaned in to see what EF Hutton would say. And that's what it was like. This crowded, noisy street all of a sudden got silent when the guy said, Yeah, I got two box seats. When EF Hutton talks, people listen. And the kid stammered. He goes, How much? And the man looked at him and said, Make me an offer. By the way, face value back then was only $10 for a one game box seat playoff ticket. And the kid froze. And I wish I could tell you it was me who gave the offer, but it was my buddy, and that was good enough. And he said, give you 20 bucks a piece. The guy looked at us. We looked clean cut enough, I guess. And he said, sold. We did the exchange right there and walked inside. The Star Spangled Banner was playing at that very moment. We walked to box seats behind first base for a playoff game, a one-game playoff game. I had never sat anywhere like that. And the whole time I was in Boston, I was always out in the bleachers. That's what I could afford. And it ended up being a game that many fans refer to as the greatest game ever played, the Bucky Dent game. Red Sox got a home run early from their future Hall of Famer, Carl Yastrzemski. Yanks had their super ace Cy Young Award winner to be, Ron Guidry, who was on his way to his 25th win of the season against three losses that day. And Yaz Homer put the Red Sox up. Now, I should mention that as crazed as Red Sox and Yankee fans were, my friend Rob, who I was with, is a diehard Red Sox fan. And nowadays, he's a season ticket holder. But he and I were both objective. And around the sixth inning, he said, Johnny, either way, either way, what a great game, either way. And it takes a real baseball fan before being a team fan, I think, to say that. And I, I just couldn't believe What was going on? It was just so great. Had an alarm clock suddenly rung and awoken me. And it was still the beginning of the day. And I was not at Fenway. And I was lying in bed. I would not have been surprised. I would have been very disappointed, but not surprised. Later in the game, the Yankees were rallying, or trying to, but they had their weakest hitter, Bucky Dent up. He hit the famous... Bucky Dent home run in what was to become the Bucky Dent game. Reggie Jackson homered for the final run, but the Red Sox never died. They got to the ninth inning. They got the tying run on third. They got the winning run on second. Goose Gossage was on the mound for the Yankees, another future Hall of Famer. And he's just throwing heat. And he later said that he was standing there thinking when the tying run was on third with two outs and the winning run was on second for the Red Sox with two outs, Well, whatever happens is okay. Either we go on in the playoffs from here, or I'll be out on my mountainside home in Colorado at this time tomorrow. And through heat to Carl Yastrzemski back up. So he had two future Hall of Famers facing off. Yaz popped one up. I think it might have even been the first pitch on the third base side into foul territory. Greg Nettles put it away. Tying run on third, winning run on second. Game over. Yanks win by one. The Bucky Dent game. And I should mention October 2nd, as it was, is also my birthday. And that is one of my American stories.
0: And what a great story. And we want to thank John Wolfe. And he's a listener again on our Boston affiliate WNTN, 1550 AM. And again, send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org and they'll make them to the air, too. We love the way the American people write and talk. John Wolfe's story. His Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees story here on Our American Stories.
6: If you enjoyed the story you just heard, give us a follow on Facebook or head on over to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the newsletter so we can send you our best stories each week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
0: This is Our American Stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen.
6: On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence. It's noble, if imperfect parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the
8: most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported, put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves... The dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together.
6: Slavery was no
8: sideshow in American history, it was the main event.
6: Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educators' list of evildoers.
8: Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government, that slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are embarking on a pretty ambitious
6: uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like Grape Nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman scholar James McGowan.
9: There is an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads in the, uh, started in this country. Uh, some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, he re- the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. When the uh, uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like this, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad.
6: In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone Steal they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher.
9: There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel as a part of that great awakening more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings
6: in the end enslaved americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom.
8: As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom.
7: Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road.
6: Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes.
7: And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for.
3: Since.
6: Harriet Tubman. We all know her name, but who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect and fear, And saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. After getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches.
0: In 1849,
6: Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her.
8: I don't know, Edward. You don't look too healthy to me.
6: In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian.
7: I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me.
6: One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted.
7: So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help you.
6: Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. Uh, Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more.
7: There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty... Or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories.
7: Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am warm. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light, take my hand.
0: Precious Lord, lead me home. When and we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In
6: 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. After an initial attempt to escape failed when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north, through the Underground Railroad, took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made
7: my way out of slavery and into the Promised Land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back. For my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that train, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger.
6: Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasaya and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kesiah's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day.
10: Kesiah was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps, the bidding started. Cassius's husband John stood in the crowd. Their eyes met, and John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. So- John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Keziah up. i now go, go! Kesiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. They eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe
6: from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves to whom she had sent messages to meet her eight or 10 miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, And because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs and Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission.
7: One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so and swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said... I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We've got to move on. Remember, Henry. Dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody.
6: Henry made it to freedom. And years later... Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee.
7: Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down, go down. Moses, Moses.
6: Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad.
10: The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved, chained, whipped, Hope still lives.
6: She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field.
7: I will praise your name forever.
6: When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory.
7: I heard God speaking to me. Saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. There were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming, and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep. But was completely awake. More aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even
0: say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Story. segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off.
6: In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside. She's here! And four young men answered the call. What you
4: men want is a bounty hunt.
6: As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods, Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to
7: stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold, and I said no such thing as too cold, and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder, but then I came out the other side, the boys followed.
6: Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent. General Tubman, as we call her. Here's professor of constitutional law Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh,
5: What they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God.
8: It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail.
6: Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett.
7: When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact.
10: Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food.
9: He would tell the story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, Well, I know you've got money for me, because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, Well, how do you know i got money for you, Harriet? And, you know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, Oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes, because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he he would have it.
7: God bless you, Ms. Garrett.
6: Garrett said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as
8: spoken direct to her soul, and her faith in a supreme power
6: truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10th, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. Swing low. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn. She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. "'Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public.' and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have led out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great great grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two pound weight thrown by the slave owner.
3: Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman, would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved and she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her, everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, You know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps.
6: It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have
8: been able to form alliances, cross-racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there's a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people, and I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad.
7: Hallelujah,
0: roll, roll, roll,
6: roll. soul Lord, the I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
3: Roll, Jordan,
1: roll. My soul will rise in heaven, in heaven Lord, Lord, for the Jordan River. Everybody say, Jordan, Roll
0: Jordan, roll, roll Jordan, Jordan, roll. Jordan, My soul roll Jordan, roll. My soul will rise in heaven, Lord, for the Jordan River. Roll Jordan, roll, roll Jordan, roll. My soul will rise. Roll, Jordan, roll, roll, Jordan, roll, my soul will rise in heaven, Lord, for
7: the
1: year when Jordan rolls.
9: Everybody say, roll, Jordan, roll, roll,
0: Jordan, roll, my soul will rise in heaven, Lord, for the
6: year when Jordan rolls.